Captain's Log, Stardate 74953. Solar flares are erupting all throughout the quadrant, and I am not sure what to make of it. Times like these make me think I have gone down the rabbit hole and into a mysterious land of wonder. This episode of These Are the Voyages is brought to you by the number 47. Welcome back to another episode of These Are the Voyages. I'm the captain, Captain Chase McKinney, and I am joined by uh, two couriers, I think, two people, some randos somewhere out there in this sector of space that I decided to pick up for this this little voyage of mine. You know them. Uh, we're talking about Lieutenant Commander Eric and, of course, Lieutenant Commander David or Jedi Master David or Captain David or whatever he is in whatever universe he's in. So, welcome back, guys. How's it been going? Hey, not too bad. Good to, good to see you again. We actually just talked, uh, what, not too long ago. About right. another universe, fun stuff. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I was. Um, I took the the vigilant, and I somehow traveled through time, space, and galaxies to arrive over in your neck of the woods, David. Talking about a little Clone Wars action on your podcast. Opened up one of those trans warp tunnels. Yes, not a trans worm or a tardigrade, but yeah. Yeah, it can, it gets a little little crazy. No Borg involved, thankfully. So, so yeah. Pre-show, we were talking a little bit about um, about like the different uh, climates that we're in. I mean, David, I think you said it's been a little rainy. Eric is about to self-combust, and I finally have my air conditioning under control. So things are looking up, except for them, I think. <laughs> turn on my air conditioning no matter how hot it gets just open the windows and sweat it out what i hate turning on the air conditioning oh i don't want to spend the money on the 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 electric bill utility bill whatever wow wow okay this is like like i think you just broke me like i i just do not understand I, I don't want to pay the electric bill, the utility bill. Man, and you're moving to San Antonio. I mean, listen. This, okay, okay. This this winter, I I you know in the winter you gotta turn on the heat because you can't be like 30, 40 degrees inside your house. It's just that's just too cold. So I ran like the heat non. It was a particularly cold winter here this year. I ran the heat like nonstop, but I'll never turn it above 65. I will never turn my heat above 65. Right, and so I just ran it nonstop for the entire month of February, and my electric bill was like three times as much as it normally is, and I was like, "Holy crap! Never doing that again." <laughs> Man, well, and, and speaking of winter, um, here in Texas, you know, when, when you know everything was like freezing over, like hell was literally freezing over type of thing, like with ice mageddon, snow apocalypse, whatever we're calling it these days. Um, like we were doing everything we could to like stay warm right and i was actually pleasantly surprised with like what our electric bill was that next month like 
it wasn't anywhere near as high as I thought it would be. Like I was expecting like, you know, three, four hundred dollars. There are some weirdos in the in the state that were getting charged like fifteen hundred dollars for their electrical bill because they were doing like some kind of wholesale electric company they had signed up with. And if one of our listeners is that I mean no disrespect, but come on now. Like fifteen hundred dollars, that's a lot for like a month of use for crying out loud, especially like with with it. It ended up only being like maybe two hundred dollars, which is like nothing in the grand scheme of things. Like just trying to keep the house heated and defrosted. I mean we did have our, our pipes that froze over. That kinda sucked in February, not gonna lie. But but yeah, like normally we keep it at we keep the thermostat at like um like sixty eight, nine, seventy ish for the most part. And anyways like with this isn't even like official like at the time of this recording, like it, it wasn't even like, you know, f- officially like summer. I mean, that's not until the 21st of June for crying out loud. And we could just not get the thing to keep up. I had to actually turn off the whole system on, I think it was Wednesday for like an hour, hour and a half, just to kind of reset some things, defrost some things. And finally we got it working again. So didn't have to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars for, you know, HVAC to come out and do their thing. So, but man, like you're coming to Texas, AC and fans, man. That is that's where it's at. I'm just saying. Yeah, I'll I'll get I'll break out all the fans I need to. Overhead ceiling fans, you know, portable box fans, as many as I need. But open the windows. But no, I will not turn on the air conditioning. Man, okay. I don't know. It, I mean, we've all. I mean, David, you live in Ohio. Eric and I, we lived in in the mitten for crying out loud. So I mean. It can get pretty darn humid in in the Midwest, in in the the Michigan Ohio area, especially like all that lake effect moisture stuff. So I mean, is it more hot or humid um, where you're at, David? Uh, well, I mean, this past week has been really dry, but until it you know kind of started backing the rain, but you know towards really the beginning of summer, that's when we were getting a lot of that fun humidity and everything, high temperatures, high humidity. But I mean, it's been fairly pleasant for for the most part, um, which is is welcome. Uh, shifts in weather in Ohio are uh, they're a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it snowed tomorrow, none of us would be all that surprised. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, living in living in Michigan, I understand that. I don't. Right? We can have four seasons in a couple of days. I can yep. remember, Eric. You might remember this too. Uh, it was my birthday weekend um, at one point, and um, it so like that's like you know end of May, right? Like the week before Memorial Day, and it snowed. I was like, "What is this?" Oh yeah, I remember that. Wh- I definitely remember that. What it is this? Snowed at a spring conclave. Yeah, yeah. That ain't right. That just that just ain't right. I want okay. So one more dumb dumb thing about like humidity and heat and stuff. Um, I'm I'm about to make this awkward for David, but Eric, do you remember? I think it was 2002. We're going way back, like almost 20 years now. And you were on staff at JLT at Topico, and I was a participant in what the heat index thing was. Like there was like rumor. I don't know how true it was that if if there wasn't like a break in the heat index, then they were going to shut down course because of how hot it was and like how dangerous it was going to be. 
Yeah, I remember that was the year I had my eye problems. Oh, that's right. And um, yeah, I that that is not a rumor. That was that was true, right? Being on staff, I know the heat index was like 115. Right. And like if it got to 120, like we were legally we had to shut down, right? There was like the law said liability, right? You could not operate. So we were like right on that verge of like having to shut down and like take shelter. And, and I remember. I think it was like the day, like the final day that it was like, it was either like 120 or it was like three days of like 115 or more, I think, of a heat index. Uh, it was going to shut down. And I think it was like that final day that it like started to rain and like the temperatures like tapered yeah. off like thereafter. And like we had like our, we built like trebuchets or catapults, whatever. And we had like water balloon fights and stuff and super soakers and jumping in the lake and that was that was fun so uh. yeah i'm sure i'm sure you as a participant didn't realize this there was a lot of things going on with the staff that year that you know didn't really make that a very pleasant experience hmm hmm now i want to know (laughs) (laughs) well that's a story for a different time dang it man dang it now that we've made David feel awkward in like a third wheel. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, we won't talk about cowboy boots because I, I, like both times, like both the most recent episodes with David and with Eric, I've somehow talked about cowboy boots and Western apparel. So I will say that if all three of us get in like the same space and we're recording like actually in each other's actual presence then maybe we'll do some kind of like hootenanny like wild west like shenanigan episode or something it'll be great we, well in fact we can do do it on like a fistful of datas or or something like that we'll do we'll pick some kind of or, western uh, episode the spec the specter of the gun yep that'll right? be fun that's the uh, okay yeah, corral yeah. yeah. from the original series maybe we'll just do like a um a Best of Western Star Trek or something. Um, wow. And then there's that Enterprise episode, North Star. There you right? go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Season three. Yeah. It's during the Zindi arc. So I know David probably's like, ah, I don't remember that. No, I remember that, but I try not to. <laughs> and what was the name of the, um, the of episode two of season three of Discovery? The one that I got, gave it a hard time. Um, far from home. Far from home. Yeah, yeah. That was like kind of westerny. The, the one where the discovery shows up and we go into the saloon. Yep. Oh. Yeah, and and he's wearing yeah, spurs. Space spurs. Yeah. Yeah. Was he? He? There were no actual spurs. That was just a sound effect, right? Pretty sure. I think that's what we commented on. It's like, where where are these spurs at? And what do they need them for? <laughs> Goodness. Well, Eric. I mean, we still got to get you like. A frisbee size, or you know, um, a dinner plate size belt buckle, before we do that episode. So um, start scouring, yeah. You know, eBay and Amazon, or we'll just go to some place here in the Fort Worth area, and we'll I'll hook you up with one. So the same goes for you, David. I mean, you got right. you, like you got to get yourself a ten gallon hat while you're at it. We, yeah, well, we we do we do have uh we do have a place in, in Columbus that is it sells very very good stuff. But I almost feel like I have to, you know, buy something in Texas to wear for this particular endeavor, whatever that might be, mm. whatever the spirit 
spirit wrangles me into. So, <laughs> should we do like a reenactment of like the Bonanza opening opening titles? Like, uh, we need like one or two more of us, right? Like writing in and stuff. Why are you doing thumbs down, Eric? I mean, come on now, that'd be fun. Maybe, maybe I'll. No, no. <laughs> How stereotypical can we get here? <laughs> oh, did any of you ever watch Bonanza just out of curiosity growing up? I know what it is. I, I never really watched it. Uh, yeah, I feel like I feel like I have seen an episode at like the um, at the laundromat. They might be on like mm-hmm. one of those television channels that they normally put on there, and I'd like seen it on in the background, mm-hmm. right, while you're sitting there waiting. But right. I don't think I've ever actually sat down to watch an episode of Bonanza. Oh my goodness, y'all. Okay. So I just like the I, image of you sitting in a laundromat just watching like old old TV, you know. <laughs> well, you know, like every every time no, this when I was living in Columbia, like the one place I was living, they didn't have they didn't have a laundry at the facility, so you had to go to the laundromat and they always had on this channel that would play like Rockford Files, um uh Kojak, right? and Fantastic. Bonanza was on there. Nice. <laughs> All right, so I'm about to make things maybe a little awkward. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and go with mine, and I I want to kind of make the rounds just for a second. So, what was like the show that like or like the the genre that maybe like your your mom or your dad was always always like watching, like you could not escape it. For me, westerns every friggin day like life changed in the McKinney household when TV land came around let me tell you um, <laughs> like between I think it was like TV land um, and I forget what the other uh, channel was like maybe like a Nick at night kind of thing uh, my dad was always watching some kind of western and I mean he had seen these shows like umpteen gazillion times umpteen gazillion times and so I mean we like you know Gunsmoke uh, Bonanza The Rifleman uh, I mean those are like the main three and then like of course like any movies that he would watch it would be like support your local sheriff support your local gunfighter with like James Garner and stuff so like my dad was like obsessed with westerns I know, I know people that, that love Westerns, but, like, you, you, I mean, like, back then, like, whatever your parents are watching, that's what you watched, basically. At least that's how it was in my household. So, like, I was just, like, I'm burnt out on, like, Western shows, except for Bonanza. Bonanza I can live with. Bonanza's a good show. Oh, Little House on the Prairie. That was the other one, too, that my dad watched the heck out of. And, uh... Your dad was watching Little House on the Prairie? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. <laughs> Yes, he was. So, and then I remember, um, I think it was like the early 2000s. There was this uh, channel. I don't know if it was just a Midwest thing or, or what, but it was called um, PAX or PAC or something like that. And they had like this prequel series called Ponderosa, which took place like I think 20, 30 some odd years before Bonanza. So, yes, there's a prequel series to Bonanza. And we watched that too. That was great. That was like around eighth grade for me. So, 
Who's up next? David, David, what was that What was that show? What was that genre that you just couldn't escape in the Fogel household? Um, well, we, we didn't really watch TV all that much. Um, I mean, there was a long series of time where we just didn't have television. Uh, not for any real reason, just because parents were busy. So our thing was movies. I mean, we watched movies, but we didn't really watch television. The only show that for, while it was on, at least for the most part, was um, like the X-Files. I watched a lot of X-Files as those were coming out. But aside from that, I mean, me and my dad would sometimes like do a lot of like cheap, uh, cheap sci-fi, you know, B, B-movie sci-fi stuff. Okay. Um, but he, he's also a huge fan of like Westerns, like Tombstone. He's got like four copies of Tombstone, not because he needs them, but because I don't know. He just has four copies of it. It's like, there's two VHS tapes. One of them's probably worn out then a DVD and a Blu-ray, you know, it's just through the years. Um, and then, uh, Kung Fu, a lot hmm. of like Kung Fu movies, uh, once upon a time in China, that, that series with like Jet Li, I think that was once upon a time in China. Anyway, there was a Jet Li series and, uh, th- there was, there was just a lot that I can't really remember the name of, but, um, I remember a very long time ago, there was a show that was like, uh, kind of a story driven, um, like kung fu kind of competition thing i I wish i remember but it was hosted by bruce lee's daughter Hmm. and uh, i remember watching that but yeah i mean we we didn't aside from it we 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 were more movie movie watchers it was just kind of whatever was interesting nice nice okay so maybe some western some x files some tombstone type stuff okay okay kung fu stuff cool how about you eric what could yeah, you all not ex- escape? Watching any like, I don't remember watching any like old shows like you know like Bonanza and Gunsmoke or any like rerun things like that or Rockford Files or whatever. I do remember watching a lot of Law and Order, mm. right? The original, right? Because in, in the '90s, SVU hadn't been SV. There's a time before SVU existed. <laughs> <laughs> like law, you know, I remember watching a lot of Law and Order, and I remember my mom always, you know, being really upset with it because my mom is a prosecutor, was a prosecutor, right? And so she would always be like, "Ah!" and she would be yelling at it. Um, so that's the one thing that comes to my mind is the original Law and Order. Okay. Okay. You know, I I think I told maybe one or both of y'all that I did get start getting into SVU uh, a couple months back, and I was like binging the heck out of it. And at one point, I was like, I want to go back and watch the original Law and Order. And I can't find it anywhere. I mean, like, not on streaming. And if you do find it on streaming, it's only, like, a partial series. So um, I think I was looking on, like, Peacock. Like, the, the I think that's... MB, it's an NBC show, I think, right? Law and Order? That sounds right. And uh, I was looking on Peacock, and yeah. um, I know you can get all of SVU, but I think you can only get part of Law and Order, at least that's how it was a few months ago. Might have changed by now. But... Yeah, since mid-2020, selected seasons have been available for streaming on the Peacock Network. Hmm. Okay. Well, good talk. Good talk, everyone. Good talk. We, um, it's been fun. Hope everyone's enjoyed this podcast. Um, if you want to get... No, we're not done, are we? We have to talk about Star Trek stuff. Uh... 
All right. Well, <clears throat> if there's if there's nothing else now that we're about twenty minutes in, after talking about westerns. And oh no! I left the oven on. I gotta go take care of that real quick. Uh, <laughs> bye. <laughs> gotta go wash my neighbor's cat. <laughs> oh goodness! All right. Well. Uh, today we're going to be talking about um, a Star Trek book, much like we, we typically do uh, for the last episode of each month. And uh, this one is a more recent book. It came out, um, I believe it was May 18th, thereabouts of 21. And uh, this, is, uh, this, this is topical in the sense that uh, it has to do with the question that we've been asking and kind of making fun of for months now with Star Trek Discovery Season 3, and that is this one whole year. Um, I've called it the Vision Quest. Eric's called it his, uh, was the the Rumspringer? The Rumspringer, yeah, the Amish thing where they go off into the real world to decide whether they want to, to stay mm-hmm. in the Amish world or not. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if David's come up with his own term, but whatever, you, whatever we've been calling it on the show, um, this particular book that we're going to be talking about today um, attempts to kind of talk about it, kind of unpack it to a certain extent with like the the year between Burnham arriving and the Discovery arriving. So um, this is Star Trek Discovery Wonderlands. It's written by Una McCormick, and it's available in paperback as well as on Audible. And and also re- read by January Lavoie, who is, I, I really like her. She's done a lot of uh, Star Wars stuff too. Very yeah, you're you're telling me that. Okay, you were telling me that. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah. I I I know I've heard this voice before. You know, good good narrator of audiobooks. I couldn't place where I had where I had heard her before, but the voice was so familiar. Yeah, she she did. Um, at least in the Wars universe, she has done the uh, Queen the Queen series, um, Queen's Peril. Uh, looking over at my bookcase the uh shadow the you know but she's she's her 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 uh uh whatever you want to call it her workload or whatever it, it's pretty wide she's done a lot okay okay so um if this is your first time listening uh this book that we're about to talk about this is not spoiler free but we're not going to necessarily spoil every tiny little thing we're always going to encourage listeners to go check it out um, and you know, read it or listen to it for yourself, and um, you know, come up with your own opinions of it. And we'll we'll get to you know that invitation, some other stuff a little bit later on. But if this is your first time listening to this podcast, welcome. Now that you've made it through 20 minutes of us rambling about shows and westerns and X Files and Law and Order and stuff. So, um, all right. So uh, this originally started. Um, with uh, with with season three uh, that aired this last fall, so it's almost been a year since we saw we first started encountering you know the third season of, of Star Trek Discovery, and of course season four is probably going to be here in just a few more months, uh, based on how things are going. I think we're we're looking at a, a fall twenty one, late twenty one uh, kind of debut for season four, and like I said, when we got to season three, um, we saw. Michael Burnham land successfully land um, in this far removed future, 900 some odd years in the future, and with the discovery nowhere to be seen. And then what happens next is 
figuring out what this new future is like, and then jumping to the next episode, which we find out is a year later. So there's been this one-year gap between episode one and episode two, and we've been asking this question, what in the world happened? What in the world happened in this one year, and why is Michael acting and behaving the way that she is as though it's been much, much longer? So... Um, so now we have this book and we can probably pick up wherever the heck we want to pick up talking about this. Um, let's talk, maybe we can talk a little bit about, um, like one particular character that we saw, um, in both the book and in the show specifically. And that is, uh, Sahil. Um, Sahil does make an appearance in this. So I don't think that's really a spoiler. Um, you mean Sahil the simp? David's got some feelings about that. <laughs> I mean, you might as well just have a nice marble statue up in his office along with his tea set. And that marble statue is of Michael Burnham. Mm. Mm-hmm. Commander. I'm, I mean, I mean can, can, can I be nicer than that for a second before you yes, go you off? Can, and be, yes, please do. Pl- go pl- ahead, please be nicer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like, I, I mean... When we watched that first episode, that Hope Is You Part One, I think I think we are all, you know, I think we all were very complimentary of the Sahil character. I think it, we that yes. that final scene at the end of the episode was fantastic. I think the highlight of the episode for us, which we all said was the best episode of the season, one of the better episodes Discovery's ever had. Right? I really enjoyed his character then. Um, it, and it's a little it's always going to be a little bit different in a book a character than they are in the show because it's not the same writers or writing staff it's somebody else's you know vision yeah sure they're working with notes but it's it's always going to be different um i think at certain points you see the strain that he's under in this book that he's just been there by himself for so long and he's had so much hope and when that hope finally comes he does everything he can to latch onto it and he won't let it go. And you say he's like the simp, but I just think it's that desperation that, and I feel like this book does a good job of showing that he has reached like some desperation. And there's a point where like, um, like at book at one time says, uh, you know, when you walk through that door, he was probably thinking you would come to take over for him and he could, you know, retire right off into the sunset and then there's a point later in the book right where Sahil says that himself basically he says like you know I've thought about you know what would it be like if I just handed this over to you and Mm -hmm. so you know I enjoyed seeing him in this book right because I enjoyed his character in the show and I wish we had had more of him right we just have like one little scene in episode three and then he shows back up in the finale right and so i liked his character i wasn't that down on him well well the, i understood why he was acting the way he was yeah and, and i mean that that is a hard assessment i i, I think that it was ju- it felt like really really strongly it just it just felt very strong in the beginning of the book but the the thing that i appreciate about sahil is is more what he is actually doing and what he's actually done because effectively he is holding this little itty bitty bit of galaxy around his station together. You know, he's got two ships. 
He he is helping plant some planets in need. He's helping couriers that that are you know kind of come and go from the station and everything. So I I, I just you know I, I I think that I think that some of that could be a little bit more highlighted than the fact that he I, I don't know it's like he, he just fawns he's just fawning a lot. But I do I do get your perspective and that I mean it, it does make a lot of sense. But I don't think that they necessarily did Sahil dirty. But that was just like the first. You know, first like chapter, first instinct was like, "Wow, he's um, he's really fawning right now, man." He's, he's <laughs> it's just it felt a little much in the beginning. Yeah, and of of course beyond Sahil, I mean, of course we have um, Cleveland Booker uh, that's back in this, of course, and uh, I don't know, book, just book, yeah, or book, book. I'm sorry. As he says many times, it's just book. <laughs> Uh, so yes, Cleveland Book Booker we have um, in this in this uh, this story as well, and I think even more so than we see in the show, you see like this this like tug of war. You see this like you know which way do I really want to go? Like with the, with Michael's character of like do I want to you know go back, go more towards like with what Sahil is and you know what he's representing. Um, like the ideals that I, I, I've lived with, you know, in terms of Star Trek and or Star, not Star Trek, Starfleet and, uh, and the Federation, or do I want to go more like this courier, like carve out my own path type of thing with like what books doing? Um, I mean, did y'all, did y'all kind of get that, that feeling too? I mean, is that, did, did y'all like kind of pick up on that in terms of like that characterization, uh, with, with Michael and like, the path that she was going down I get that she fights a lot mm-hmm. with everybody mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the thing is is like yeah obviously there there's there's some sort of you know there no wait there's not just some there's a lot of inner monologue that dominates the majority of the book and makes it seem much longer than what it should be but you know f- from ju- just from my perspective Michael really never throughout this book has let the Federation go. And the the interesting thing for me is that I started philosophically thinking about the actual, you know, the the charter, the the, um, values of the Federation, how the Federation was in actuality, not just the way people want to think about it. Um, We bring in the... uh, the diaries of uh, Sahil's grandmother, I think it was, Priya? Yes. I think it was his great-great-grandmother. Great. Okay. Yeah, it, it was definitely... No, I was just saying, yeah, it's definitely way back. And I thought that was really interesting, even some of her categorizations of her dealings on the Federation Council um, and sort of trying to make deals and so forth. But f- for me, I, th- I think... Michael is and, and his book even points out you're the true believer you're 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 the true believer and the, the thing is is that times do change things do change needs change and whereas I, I feel like honestly I think one of the best categorizations of the Federation is probably represented in DS9 where we start to question some of the the, the, the values or, or how things are actually done in the Federation through like ben, Benjamin Sisko and sort of questioning, you know, this, um, you know, uh, what we say versus what we do, 
Whereas I think in next gen, it was very idealistic, very, uh, you know, front loaded. It wasn't so much questioning, at least in the very early stages of things. But I think that the Federation should be questioned. I, I think that the charter should be questioned. I think that how they treated everyone and, and even themselves should be questioned. That's what keeps things open. That's what keeps progress alive is when you can, when, and when you have the ability to question what's going on, then you have the ability to potentially make positive changes. And it, just to bring up one last point, and then I'll shut up for a bit, but in Priya's diary, she mentions a deal that she was making that would have impacted several planets that was hung up on a minor technicality from someone from a smaller world. And I started to think to myself, yeah, and maybe you should like talk to that person. Maybe your inclusivity should also include that small world. And, and like maybe that technical technicality means a lot to them. There could be something in their culture that specifically, and maybe not, probably not, but it could. So the, the indefinable question is how do you give everybody a voice? How do you make everybody in quotations equal at the, at the table? And that's something that I feel like was explored a lot here. But again, you have Michael getting back to the point. I always feel like very hardline that the Federation is better. You would be better off with the Federation and book is always saying, but are we? So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting thinker. Right. Right. Cause I mean, it, we, we've we've talked about in the past, you know, like with um, like the Ferengi, for instance, like the Ferengi represent more of like who we are pre in like present day 20th, 21st century human society, uh, like with with greed and commerce, like capitalism and like taking advantage of things. Um, and I'm kind of like paint with broad brushstrokes, of course. And then we, we see this this future, like apart from the Ferengi. Right. Um like what Gene Roddenberry was talking about and how it's like this utopian, you know, future and you can pursue whatever the heck it is that brings you happiness. Like case in point with, um, with, uh, Jake Cisco for crying out loud. Um, I think, uh, Eric and I were t talking about this to a certain extent on our last episode that we, we did together where, you know, like, uh, captain Cisco, like it kind of expected him to, you know, go to Starfleet Academy and, and you know, serve Starfleet and follow down the same path to a certain extent. And Jake's like, no, I want to be a writer. And you know, flash forward like what 800 years from that, basically. And now it's like it's back to this money thing and this like you're like you're saying, David, this this back and forth of the Federation was better, Starfleet was was better compared to what it is now. And it was better because that is what your reality was. It was better because that's what your experience was. But to Book, who's only ever known, and like everyone else in this far-flung future, this is better because they've never known that other thing. But which one truly is better? And it kind of goes back to like just this, like the listening, like the pointing out, like of this this one little technicality. Are we actually talking to each other to really understand why something is or is not important? Why something does or does not matter in the grand scheme of things? Let me also interject one other thing, too. Was the Federation ever truly a moneyless society? And was money, not just, not just physical currency, but think about this just for a second, because I was thinking about it as I was, I was playing some basketball this morning. That's where I do my thinking, on the court. Uh, 
Now, in uh, in Tapestry, which is probably one of my favorite next-gen episodes, mm-hmm. so Picard not getting stabbed in the heart, not taking risks, all that good stuff, basically makes him, what was he, a lieutenant, mm-hmm. I think, in the alternate sort of Q reality. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that this extremely capable man and this one definable thing made him split so vastly. Okay, cool. But what if you are a good, average stalwart officer you do the right thing you do your job you do it well but maybe you don't necessarily take risk maybe you don't advance because we see a lot of people including Kirk and and Riker's backstories and stuff taking risks and winning advancement so that actually in my mind does make a sort of social currency your social currency is achievement it is advancement So in a way, because of human nature, we're always kind of looking for something. And while that's not sellable like money, it's, it's still, it's still a means that you are, that you're moving forward, that, that there's, there's something more than just living your dreams. And then the other part of that is Latinum's still around Mm -hmm. and it's still used. It's not like it wouldn't necessarily be accepted in the Federation. But it's still there. And Federation, if, uh, we see it all the time. We see it on DS9. And then the very last thing that I put in here, and I did a lot of thinking, and this is going down a scientific route. Okay. Think about this. Everything, well, not every everybody. I mean, there are obviously cases, but we have these replicators, right? Replicators are sick. Man, they give you anything you want, basically. Yeah, man. How do replicators make stuff? materials around you they're basically taking resources and converting them they're taking existing matter and converting it into what you need so what happens in an extreme case when you can't do that it's not that the replicators busted it's that you don't have resources to to do anything with so then your currency becomes resources and that ties back into the book because we had this little kind of blurb about Ships weren't coming in. Resources weren't coming into these planets. So no one is now self-sufficient. So what good is the Federation? Oh, what's the ships coming in? So I don't know. There, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of cracks that start to develop for me in this. Mm. And then again, it kind of relates back to Book's understanding of the, of the universe at large. Sure. As he sees it, why would I be better off without the Federation? Eric's it's probably been, a lot of itching, rambling. Right, so Eric's been itching to say some stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm itching to get in here. There's there's so much that has been said that I about that I need to get in here. So first, Starfleet is not a military organization, but it's like a paramilitary right. organization, and they have a command structure, and everybody gets you know some type of military training. So like the military is supposed to be the ultimate meritocracy, right? You advance based on your own merits and how well you work right it's not supposed to be who you know right it's not supposed to be right it's supposed to be the ultimate meritocracy and so i kind of use starfleet you said that's sort of like you work hard and you take risks that's sort of a social currency but i just think of that as you know advancing based upon your merits right that's the way it should work out in the idyllic world that we think of the second thing i want to say is that in this in this era this 
Alex Kurtzman era of Star Trek, we've been talking about the decline of the Federation, right? This is one thing that, you know, Picard brought up, and now here we're seeing it in Discovery, that some people think the decline of the Federation is very antithetical to the entire nature of, of Star Trek. But as you pointed out, back in Deep Space Nine, we were already starting to see that. And so in, in That Hope Is You Part One, and many, many times in this book, Michael Burnham points out, she says, the Federation is not just ships and dilithium, right? The Federation is a vision, right, of the future, and it's, it's you know, a shared idea about how we're all better together. But is that really what the Federation is? And, and we start to ask, like, okay, yeah, the burn happened and all this dilithium blew up, but why did that cause the downfall of the Federation? Shouldn't this vision of what the Federation is have you know, been able to overcome that? And like, why did ships not show up at these planets to help? And and this book kind of starts to explore that. And I think it was also explored in Star Trek Picard, where like the Federation got so big, right? It got so big and they were just bringing in more members and bringing in more members. And it got too big to handle itself. I think Admiral Vance in one of these episodes in season three even said that to a certain extent that it got it just got too big and too unwieldy to really to really function and you started to see a lot of these outer worlds as opposed to the core worlds and i and like i've never heard this phrasing in star trek ever before the core worlds right it's very star wars <laughs> very star wars yeah star wars, <laughs> the deep core yeah and then the outer planets like the outer rim yeah. and it's like so these these outer worlds, you know, that had less influence than Earth and Vulcan and Andor and Teller and all these these core worlds, they started to feel neglected. Like, you know, the Federation isn't focusing on us, right? So maybe we have to do things on our own and take care of ourselves. And and this goes back into like Picard, Star Trek Picard, where, you know, the Federation was going to spend all of these resources to help the Romulans, right? Here are our ships, here are our people, here are our resources to help you relocate. And some of these Federation worlds said, uh, excuse me, shouldn't we spend those ships and those resources on us as opposed to the enemy? Or the enemy, a supposed <laughs> former right. enemy. Right. Yes, I know they yeah. need our help, but shouldn't we focus our resources on us? And if you're going to ignore us and help our former enemy why are we going to be a part of the federation why don't we just go off on our own and they threaten to leave and that's why the federation stopped helping the romulans and i think you can go back a little bit more and say okay there's a cardassian in this book a cardassian character in this book and um you know it's very far removed from the dominion war but you've got to imagine that the federation spent a lot of resources to help rebuild Cardassia after the Dominion War, after the Dominion just carpet bombed the crap out of it, right? So you've got to believe now the Federation spent all these resources on rebuilding Cardassia. Now we're spending all these resources on rebuilding the Romulans. Like, we think of, you know, Star Trek and the Federation as a post-scarcity world, but as you said with the Replicators, like, there are a limited number of resources, and this is part of what led to the downfall of the Federation. And you see in this book, right? I'll just, one more thing. This book, they go to this planet, 
uh, Ikasu. I don't know how much we want to get into all of, like, the details of the plot, but they go to this planet that has essentially cut itself off, right? And said, we're not going to allow communications outside because we can take care of ourselves and we don't need anybody else. And in that episode, People of Earth, when we went back to Earth, you know, they said the same thing. They were like, we can take care of ourselves now. We don't need anybody else. We don't need the Federation. And that's yeah. the world they're living in now. Well, and just one more tie-in, just sort of a, I guess, a basic charter question here. What's what's the adage, um, if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. If you teach a man to fish, he'll, you know, whatever, never starve. I mean, do you think it might have been a little bit better than just heaping resources on people and giving them technology? Or I mean, I know that was kind of like with, with Enterprise, you know, it was kind of interesting with the, the Vulcan dynamic and, you know, not giving too much away and so forth. But, you know, later on when Vulcan kind of turned over in, um, I believe that was like towards the last season when they found, anyway, uh, the my point is is that they started to share far more openly and i kind of wonder when you when you become like a, a member world or whatever how much is honestly shared and how reliant you become on the idea of the federation as opposed to continuing to strengthen internally you know and i kind of feel like that would be important like well i mean just in today do, do either of you know how to grow a garden i know that's a really basic question but do you know how to grow a garden yeah Okay, so you know that there are some seeds I mean, out I there. I can use a shovel and dig up some dirt and plant stuff. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it, it's not a judgment. I, I just wondered because the thing is, is like there are certain seeds that you buy that you cannot use the following year. It's it's a one and done. Like you can't get seeds from your plants and like make new plants. You know, it's it's a part of sort of the system to <laughs> buy more seeds, right? But if you don't know that, I mean, you could say, well, I'm going to grow tomatoes and then. You can't ever grow tomatoes again unless you have more seeds. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a matter of self-reliance and knowing how to do that kind of stuff that, you know, say if the replicators fail, do you know how to grow food? Do you have a place, even a place on your planet that you could grow food on? Do you know how to build buildings without an industrial replicator or something right. like that? that, that right. th that's, those are just the sort of things that I think about. And I think in this book, it seemed very, very much that they couldn't or they, they just didn't know how anymore or something. I could be wrong, but that's the way I felt. Well, I mean, like, even if... Let's let's go, like, back to basics, even with, like, Star Trek stuff, okay? Like, we, we learn through various, you know, stories and stuff, like First Contact, for example, right? Like, you don't give people, like, warp technology or, or how to advance their warp technology until they prove that they can, you know do it through their own personal evolution as a society basically and whatever the heck happened over 900 years I mean we have like we know some things right like we know some things that have happened in terms of like the burn like temporal cold war um, and whatever else happened in like the Picard era that's like contributed to different like things different movements um, like just from a first contact pr perspective like you have to demonstrate your own um, reliance, your own resilience as a society in order to continue to advance and to improve with like, you know, allies. I mean, case in point with, with the Vulcans and Earth, I mean, like, that was like one big giant cluster for a number of years, but eventually like 
things started to like to turn and, and it got a lot better. But with with you know warp drive and like the burn, um, yeah, maybe there was too much reliance and they just they had focused so much on needing ships or replicators or whatever the heck it might have been to yeah, we've straight up forgotten how to take care of ourselves. We've become, we've grown so dependent that we don't even know that you know B comes after A, so to speak. Well, Atollis, one of the other planets we hear about, was kind of an example of that. They had no way to reclaim or recapture water, so that was a that was the big deal and what got them in trouble. And you know, I I, I wrote notes and I kind of I put down here: Should I feel bad for Atollis? Should I feel bad? I do. Like, I feel bad that they're in the predicament, but it seems like, through the explanations, that they kind of brought a lot of it on themselves. So, how bad should I feel about that? I don't know. Yeah, I, I was kind of thinking about that. All throughout this book, we, we, we see these discussions back and forth between Burnham and Book. And Burnham is always like, we have to go help these people. We have to go help these people. We have to go help these people. This is the right thing to do. And Book is like, Maybe not. Maybe it's not the right thing to do. And with this planet of Atalus, you know, he says their way of life is not sustainable probably anymore. And, you know, they need to realize that. And sometimes you need to let people fail to realize they need to change their ways. And so I think this this book, this novel, tries to paint Michael Burnham as always being in the right and book maybe not being in the right I that's the impression that I got and and I found myself agreeing with a lot of the things that that book was saying like along the way not so much with the things that Michael Burnham was saying 100% yeah, even though I don't agree. think that's the way they wanted it to come off no, I mean b- book seems very reasonable like I, I mean I, I always like the character since sort of the introduction but I I, I find I find a lot of respect for his arguments, you know. I mean, and sometimes you have to argue. Sometimes argument's good, but I just, I felt myself siding with him a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, the the, the, the trajectory and just like the interactions throughout this story, this novel, this book thing. Um, I, I'm 100% with y'all in terms of of, uh, of book and being more on his side than I was on, on any of, of Burnham's. Um, there's just like, just like the show, and I'm going to sound kind of negative, but like there was just so much exposition dump. Like it was just an oversaturation of stuff throughout this story. Like this, like, I don't know. Okay, so like I have the physical copy. I don't know if anyone else got the physical copy, but like in the, um, on Audible, for example, I know that like the chapters are like, what, an hour and some change at least thereabouts yeah something yeah. like that and i don't i don't know if it's just me like i mean believe it or not i do read by the way y'all um but the chapters just se- seem so long in this book like the chapters are like between 30 to 40 pages long i know that's like kind of like on the higher average side but like that just seems like a lot of of pages for a chapter for crying out loud well, I, I don't know how does how does the the book actually the physical copy actually work? Because like, in the audio book, you'll hear the the like the new stage setting. It'll be like 
former Federation spaceport, Deep right. Loco, or it, but before or you say that, plan, planet Planet Atalus, right? Bef- and then and then and but within the same chapter, right? There'll be those things, those stage settings, right? But and before, it does say that. Just, like, is there a state? So go ahead, go ahead. Okay, David. Go ahead, David. No, I, I was just gonna say, do either of you like the name of the station? Am I being nitpicky in that I just I, I kind of it's like no, I don't I don't want it. I don't You're know about why. Vanguard? It's it's a name. No, D- like, Diva Loca. Oh, Diva Loca. I, I just don't. I, I, I don't. I, I don't really know why. Uh, normally, I'm okay. Names, I just don't. Like, I just. Meh. This is the name of the space station. Whatever. Hey, right? I'm a big. This is the name of the planet. Whatever. They. I don't. I don't think too much into those things. Well, I mean, like there, there's a, there's a there was a ship, uh, the Crazy Horse. You know, at one point, it's like I don't. I don't. But, but I don't. I don't. It's probably very nitpicky. I'm not going to apologize for it, but I just didn't really. It's like, stop it, please stop. No, no, no I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm a big fan of Lone Star Station. I mean, I'm just saying, I think that's a great name. I think it's a fantastic name. It's a strong name. But to answer your question, um, yes, um, it is in there. So, like, you have like your little bold headings. You know, say like Commander Michael Burnham, personal log. They'll say the Alice. Um, it'll say. Um, Ileana Padan's ship, right? I mean, it does have all that bookship, the Luxier system. Yeah. Yeah. That, there's Vanguard. another one. Okay. Right. Her ship's name is Alice. It's like a kid who's naming a new dog, and they always name it Bella. <laughs> well, uh, Michael Burnham has always, to me, emotionally seemed like a child in in some respects, right? Sure. I mean, maybe that's just a human who went through a trauma of losing her parent, never got to grieve, and then was raised by Vulcans. You know, her emotional yeah. growth was stunted. <laughs> it just it just when she said that, I'll call you Alice, I was like, oh my god, please. Just like name it the Sarek or something. Like give it a cool name, but the Alice. Okay, fine. <laughs> it's your well, ship. Well that ties in with the title, right? That's like everything with the title, Wonderlands and yeah, okay. how you know I it, in the exposition she feels like Someone who's tumbled down a hole oh, and has it. to figure everything out. All right, it's, fine. It's a metaphor. <laughs> but I, so I did want to talk about that. Like, so obviously we have like some some you know, Lewis Carroll, some Alice in Wonderland through the Looking Glass type stuff going on with this. But did y'all also pick up on like some of like the Arthur Conan Doyle, like Sherlock Holmes stuff that like was popping up every now and again, or was that just me? I didn't notice any of that. Okay, it was like towards. No, the I, I mean, the, 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 there was obviously like you know literary tie-ins, like you talked about. I mean, she even she even mentioned Narnia at one point. Yep. yep. Which I, yeah, I yeah, was, I thought that was funny. Yeah. yeah. He, he was talking about like Earth and Vulcan. It's like I might as well be talking about a fantasy world. Yeah. Like Narnia. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that was that was interesting. Yeah. Do you think Sahil knows what Narnia is? <laughs> Man, as, as a big C.S. Lewis is fan, they better. so far in the future, and he's so far away? Does he know what Narnia is? I don't know. I would hope so. I mean, pr- probably, I think, probably not. I would think no. Pro- it's probably answer. not, but I mean, like... I mean, who knows? Like, these, these station databases and ship databases, there's, like, so much information in them. Maybe they were able to dump the entire human like literary catalog into this into here i mean it's it's possible who knows 
it's possible. I mean, yeah. Anyway, um, so so I was when in some of the prep I was doing for like this show, um, I found out some things about um, about the the author. So I just want to kind of like just we'll do like a quick pause on like what we're talking about. Apparently, Una McCormick got her start doing um, fan fiction, like a bunch of fan fiction. So I guess my question is, does this read like fanfic? No one wants to take that one. <laughs> uh, um, well, well, I guess, like I said earlier, I said earlier at the beginning, this character of Michael Burnham does not read to me as the same character in the show. Like, not at all. Like, yeah. maybe that's just because she's not whispering all the time, and I was listening to it on oh, audio. Oh, hold on. And I wasn't hearing the whispering. No, 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 no. Maybe, I don't know, when you were reading, when you were reading it, did you read it in a whisper voice? Okay, I'm going to come back to this whisper thing here in just a second. I want to I want to hear some more. Go ahead. Okay, I'm just saying, like, like, this Michael Burnham did not read to me at all as the same character, and maybe that's just because I'm listening to an audiobook sure. and I'm not hearing... Maybe if Sonequa Martin-Green was reading the dialogue and the inner monologue, it would, but it just didn't feel like the same character to me at all. Like, not at all. Mm -hmm. And, like, I'm not the biggest fan of Michael Burnham. Like, I'm just going to say that. She's not my favorite character. I, I don't really like her all that much. Um, you know, three words to describe her would not be positive terms, right? Like, insubordinate, self-righteous, holier-than-thou, right? <laughs> you know? Like, hypocritical. Like, all the things that I would use to describe her are negative. But I feel like she's portrayed so positively in this book. It's like the most idealized version of Michael Burnham, like, that you could have. So, in a sense, I could see someone who is a fan and, and like, is reading all the criticism of Michael Burnham online and says, well, screw you people, I'm going to write this awesome fanfic thing. So I can understand how people might think that. But it's, I think it's written too well, right, the prose. I mean, as much as David said he doesn't like the inner monologuing, I still think it's, it's written with enough level of competence that it, it comes off better than fan fiction to me. Yeah, I, I, I was just perusing through my notes, and there, there are a couple of things that I, I had written down that they, they annoyed me um, about within the monologue where there was one part where Michael uh, pseudo compares herself to, like, Greek heroes. Mm. Uh, there no. was another one where... Um, no, Odysseus. Well, well, yeah, in the generational shift that we see where she talks about the younger people on there being her disciples. Um, people don't talk like that. I, I've never once thought about, you know, man, I, I think I'm more of a Hector than a, than a, you know, than a Spartacus or whatever, just naming off random people from history. I've never once thought of myself in those terms. Now, I have thought about, like, fictional characters... You know, like in the Lord of the Rings, I'm Halberd. 
I've come to understand this about myself. I'm not one of the great heroes of the book. I'm just the guy who shows up kind of towards the end and unfortunately dies. But, 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 but those kind of characterizations hit me the wrong way. And for me, I agree with Eric. I don't really think that this is fan fiction. D- despite me not liking the literary style of it, I don't think it's fan fiction, but those sort of categorizations are things that I have absolutely seen used in fan fiction and they bother me because she's, she's a person, but she's constantly bringing up, oh man, I saved all sentient life. <laughs> it's time for a smoke break. You know what I mean? It, it, it just, it, it, it rubs me the wrong way. But the thing is, and, and again, agreeing with Eric, I don't necessarily think that that was the same Michael from the show. And I have to disagree with only one thing. I liked Michael in season one and season two. I like that arc. I just didn't really like what we became in season three. Mm. Okay. The, I think what, like one of the other critiques, um, one of the, like kind of going back to what Eric was saying a moment ago, like these these negative things that you can you start to hear about um, about Michael is like more from like YouTubers and podcasters, not necessarily maybe us. I don't know, but this this um, idea of her being a Mary Sue. So do you, do you think that she is a Mary Sue in this book? No, this book proves that she's absolutely not. <laughs> Very good. I, that was one of the things that I enjoyed is that, uh, like with the, the, the outcome of Atollis was completely not what she was expecting. And actually a lot of it, the outcomes were not what she was expecting. And that is actually one of the things that I did like. Right. Because that's real. That to me, that's more of a reality. Mm-hmm. The the I want to go back to like the whispering well, thing. Well, I, I I never really thought about Go ahead, Eric. Go uh, ahead, Eric. I never really thought about Michael Burnham as a Mary Sue because you always think about a Mary Sue as having no flaws. Sure. Right? Yeah. But Michael Burnham, all I all I picture are her flaws. <laughs> Yes, she saves the day at the end, miraculously somehow, but I feel like she has so many flaws as opposed to other characters that you might in other star galaxy-based franchises think of having very few flaws. So she's so she's Tom Cruise basically. She might get her she might get whooped the entire movie, but then you do a fancy spin kick and you win. I think it's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. All right, so let's go back to that whisper that we were talking about. I had, I had asked um, David this uh, when, like, I think, like, maybe several days ago, at least. I was like, hey, I bet you, can you figure out what my mo- the most annoying part, what the thing that annoyed me the most was? Can you guess what it was? And were you able to figure it out, David? No, see, that was the thing. I, I wanted to ask you about that, but I forgot because I, I was so annoyed by other things that I kind of forgot what you would be annoyed <laughs> with. So, yes, what were you annoyed by, Chase? <laughs> it was the very first page. Page seven in the book, the beginning of chapter one, okay? Sometime later. Mother. Michael Burner has fallen down a rabbit hole. Mother. A red figure with wings. Mother. What was her name again? Mother. And then I'm not going to say that really fast. Mother. Angel Devil. Mother. Are we there yet? Mommy? Like, that... 
I, I wanted it's to art, stop man. reading then. I wanted to stop reading then, like page one. I was like, I do not want to read any further. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. I don't know if that rubbed anyone else the wrong way, but I just, I like, I, I, I seriously, I, so I, I, I go back and forth, right? Like I read it, read it home, like in the book. And then like when I'm on the go, like I'm listening to it too. But I, so I'd started out listening to it in the car. I was like going to get my daughter from school or something. And, uh, yeah, I heard that and I heard the whispers and I heard this mother thing and it was like nails on a chalkboard with me. I was like, no, please. No, like this can't be the beginning of the book. Like the prologue, right? Like the, like that stuff. I was fine with that stuff. Like, you know, talking about like historians know some time ago, you know, Starbase 906, sometime after the burn. I'm totally fine with that stuff. Chapter one, page one. No, no, I, I just, I'm going to sound like a total hipster or like a, a whatever, but like, I can't even with, with that page. Like I just, I can't even. No cap. That's another new term too, by the way. <sighs> I'm not, I'm not hip. I'm not with it. But yeah, like it just, that drove me, that drove me out my ever loving mind. Not going to lie. Am I, am I the only one? I guess so. No, it, it was, it, it was a little. Yeah, it was a little weird. Yeah. Don't mean it. And then I read it out loud and it's even weirder, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, only if you okay. whisper it. Mother. Mother. Don't actually, don't actually. Can, do can that. I just tell you a few things that bothered me about this book? Do it. Right. I know we're we're talking a lot about the things we didn't like about this book. I got a couple of things that I want to say first off. I am an academic. I'm an educator, right? I, you know, I've been a college professor for ten years, right? Um, I love academia. So, in this book, in in Star Trek, right, the Federation earth we don't have money right we don't have money jake's like i'm a human i don't have money and and unless we do unless it means matters for the plot then we have money right that's right right david said in d space nine all the humans we have latinum because we got to go to quark's bar quark's not gonna just let us take stuff right so unless it matters for the plot but like michael burnham jumps to this future where there's now money again and she's like there's like this point where she like describes money money currency or tokens that can be used to exchange for gifts and services <laughs> like like she's reading a textbook about what money is and like she just doesn't understand how to work with money and book has to be her teacher to to tell her like hey don't take the first offer start to haggle and hey look as long as you look at this the price is going up but here's the thing maybe the federation and earth and starfleet doesn't use money but the federation starfleet they know we are going to encounter other species that do use money and we are going to have to barter and potentially do things with them. So if, as me as an educator, I am thinking, if I'm creating the curriculum at Starfleet Academy, I'm teaching economics. Yeah, not one, not one econ Basic class. economics course, like econ 101, yeah. right? And then, then maybe macro and micro, but I'm putting that in my curriculum because while we might not have money, we're going to encounter other species that probably do use money. So that like really bothered me. Like I like 
that just really bothered me about this. Like, because it just seems like such a basic idea. Mm-hmm. Does uh, that I, bother I anybody agree. else? I'm I wrote that down. You. I wrote that down too. I was going to mention it later, but yeah, the, the, like, you know, oh, yeah, I can, I'm I can. The curriculum at the academy. We're we're having an economics class. Yeah, I, I can I can build a, a reactor, but I can't. I don't understand your currency system. What? Not one. Not one class. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing that bothered me is the language in this book, right? I was, yeah. I don't mind curse words, swear words, adult language. I, I, I don't have a problem. Not some kind of like, I don't know, prudent, prude is there. I'm not that type of person. But there's a time and a place for this type of language. And I don't think Star Trek is the time or the place to drop F-bombs all over the place. Like, and in the TV show is starting to do it, right? Um, both Picard and Discovery are dropping F-bombs on us, and it just feels so out of place. And it feels really out of place in this book as well, this novel. Like, there's this, this moment where Michael Burnham breaks down and she, like, spills her heart out to Book, essentially. And Book just says, that's fucked up. And then, like... I don't know if the emphasis is there's emphasis added to this in the book if it's like in bold or in caps lock, but the the our January Lavoy like puts a lot of emphasis on it. She's like that is effed up, like just so much. Em- I don't know if it's because it, there's emphasis in the book or not, but it just felt very out of place to me. And I just I just I don't mind language, but in this book it just it I I don't like it. I mean, me and Chase, uh, in some of the other books, we, we've said that, too. Because it's, it's like it's it started to, okay, so there's one, you know, damn. Oh, damn. Okay, cool. And then it's like we're, we're, it, it's almost progressively escalating a bit. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's several examples in this one. And it's like in a normal world, like one of the times was when Book smashes his nose. Yeah, I would probably let out a couple there, but I, I don't know how... That was my thought. I, I just don't know how needed it is. Um, I read a lot of Star Wars books and have read a lot of Star Wars books. Cursing isn't really a thing, but there again, in new canon, it's all Disney too. You know, so they don't really a lot for that. And I think that there's, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I it, it felt weird. <laughs> it felt weird. And then after this, I'm gonna go cuss a few times in my bathroom by myself, so just to get it out. But. Right. Yeah, the, the, the whole, um, like, F-bombs and other, like, mature themes and, and whatnot, like, that's definitely a, a thing of, like, the Kurtzman era of, of Trek. Like like you said, like, we've been seeing it in Picard, we've been seeing it in um, certainly Discovery Season 1, 2, and 3, for crying out loud. And it's, it's a far cry from, well, a double dumbass on you from... You know, voyage home for crying out loud. <laughs> um, I'm probably gonna have to put a mature rating on this on this episode now. This is awesome. <laughs> Thanks a I'm lot. I'm sorry. I I just had to bring that up. It was something that was like I had to bring up because it just doesn't sit well with me. Well, mm-hmm. and the the thing too is that like I watched Star Trek when I was a kid, like a kid. I was young when the next generation was running and we had the original series playing before that. 
And like something that I know me and Chase have talked about um, with, uh, well, I, I mean, I'm sure he's talked with you too about it, but like with, you know, watching some of these series with, with his kid. And you can't. You can't watch them with your kid, the new series. Um, and I think that that's, almost, that's kind of a lost thing too because I think that it's, it's good to – it's good to have these sort of shows for kids because it used to be so much about like science. Like we have astronauts who started their careers because of Star Trek. Advancements have been made because of what was being shown on television via Star Trek. And when you kind of take away that young demographic and, and grant it, it does because some, some parents don't like their kids to have those mature themes that young. And I understand that. That's their choice. I, I, I kind of think it's a bit of a mistake. Yeah, I know. Like, I remember there was... I don't know if there was any episodes in Discovery that did this, but, you know, uh, there was definitely one episode in Picard where it said TVMA was the rating of the episode. And I was like, hold on a second, right? TVMA on a Star Trek episode that that and I think it was the episode like because each ship gets his eyeball ripped out oh, right at the God. beginning and I was like, eyes. that was just unnecessary oh. it's always the eyes I hate that this is not this is not King Lear right <laughs> or is it <laughs> I don't know maybe 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 Chase got that reference I'm hoping a listener out there too understood what I meant when I said that Oh man. Well, um, we, I know we've been I know we've been kind of ragging on it uh, for pretty much the entire episode. Um, any anything that you that like really stands out as like, man, I really like that, or really appreciated that, or that was that was pretty good um, from this story. Book. It's the courier book stuff was interesting. I mean, you have they have their own little planet, secret planet for their families and you actually realize they aren't so fragmented they aren't so out for themselves in totality that was kind of neat to see um Ileana Padan or Cardassian was was kind of interesting um sort of not much from her but like oh okay that's kind of cool um I, I really enjoyed the 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 log from Sahil's grandmother, great grandmother. Yeah, like I cool. I thought that was really interesting to see all the insights back to you know what was happening at the time of the burn and and how her planet was dealing with it. And they were like, hey, you know, there's been an accident. We don't know how big it is, but somebody's gonna come and help. Ooh, wait, no, maybe nobody's gonna come and help. Uh, people are stranded and people we have to start to accept this new reality and then they were like burn deniers right she talked about how people were denying yeah. that the burn was a thing <laughs> but I, I i really enjoyed that part of the book that was probably my favorite thing i think for me like mine's like just more painting with broad strokes it's just just the fact that we got book again i mean that's that's the main thing for me is just getting to to learn more hear more about him um, in that gap year, in that um, that one year little sojourn that we uh, we were not privy to, so um, I, I really I really enjoyed um, learning more about book um, in this book. So um, and I'm looking forward to, to seeing more of them in season four um, as well. 
So um, I know that we've been going for over an hour. Um, are there any other like, um, like other nuggets that um, or other things that y'all want to like talk about as we start to wrap this thing up? Well, I just one question. Like, did the ending surprise anyone? Uh, we don't have to talk about what it was, but like, were you able to figure it out before it was revealed? I'm not it was surprising. I mean, maybe it was like. Well, I mean, I think it, I think it, I think they thought it was the author thought it was going to be a surprise. Not so much. I mean, it was kind of like a, a mixed bag for me. So. Okay. Well, um, I know what we typically do with books in terms of like our own. Like, of course, we've like kind of reviewed it. We've talked through it for the most part. Um, so let's kind of give this a rating, kind of like we do with um, the episodes that we, we do on Engage and like the uh, the book episodes that we, we've been doing. So um, we'll do this out of, uh, let's do it out of five stars. So um, Eric, how would you rate this book? Um, two and a half. I mean, I don't want to be too harsh, right? Um, Is that one and a half or a half? But- no, two oh, and a two half, and a half. okay. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I don't want to be super harsh. Like, was it, like, the greatest thing I've ever read? Certainly not. Was it the worst thing I've ever read? Certainly not. That would be Ethan Frome. I, that is the worst oh. thing I've ever read in my life. Or Bartleby the Scrivener, right? The, maybe the Bartleby is the worst thing I've ever read. Um, it was, It was enough to pass the time while I was just, you know not doing much right you know driving in the car turn it on um it wasn't something that was difficult to listen to or i struggled to finish but if you ask it would i recommend this to somebody if you're a diehard michael burnham fan right i would recommend this to you but like i'm not going to go out of my way and tell people this is the book you have to read it was it was fine it wasn't terrible it wasn't great okay david the book annoyed me it, it it annoyed me a lot you know just you know the, the, there was another thing I wrote down about you know how how can Michael Burnham feel whole and I think that that at least for me was explored in certain parts of season three but there's just so much back and forth there's so much back and forth so much exposition we didn't even get a description of a space battle. We got space battles, but there was not, they were over. It was just over and done with. So, I yeah, I don't want to be like overly harsh because like Eric, it's not the worst thing that I've ever read. It's not, it's not even, It's but it's not like even close to the most mediocre thing that I've read. So I, I think that um, you know there are some good parts, but I, I'm just I'm really struggling to to not be like I I would probably say like two point two five to be exact. <laughs> but, very very exact, yeah. <laughs> wow. All right, so I will let me say this. So looking at um, 
Goodreads. I don't know if Goodreads is necessarily like the like authoritative like book rating source or whatever. But out of a hundred uh, ratings, uh, fifteen I guess written reviews or whatever, uh, this book has a four point two nine average rating on it, um, and a lot of it is like four and a half and five stars, with a good many being like three. There's quite a few threes. Um, I've seen one one um, so far on this. So I mean. For the most part, it's it's been pretty well received. I mean, like some of the the comments have been, you know, like it's a very melancholy novel type of thing. Um, I love Michael Burnham. Like those are some of the comments, and uh, I think I saw one on there at one point that was like, um, I took someone's advice to watch episode one, read this book, and then watch episode two of Discovery season three. So I mean, like I guess that makes sense because that's kind of the intention, right? Um, for me, like I can get over a book pretty well for the most part, but like that first page just did not sit well with me. And it really, I mean, like I really did have to stop and like put the book down just after the first page and like come back to it after a while. That's pretty bad. So I'm, I'm not a big, big, big fan of, of this story. Um, it was very tedious as far as I'm concerned. Um, we were, it was a bunch of, um, hurry up and wait, uh, for the most part, I think, uh, with this story. So I'm going to give it, uh, uh, I'm probably going with, with David on this. I'm just going to go with a two and a quarter. So we're, we're, I mean, we're all in the same camp for crying out loud. Um, this is, it's not a, a horrible book, but it's not a great book either. So. It's, it's very much middle of the road for us. But, I mean, like Eric said, if you are a huge disco fan, if you're a big Michael Burnham fan, then this book is for you. Um, so, I mean, if, that, if that's the case, if you love Discovery and you want to, like, learn more, you know, and read the story for yourself, then by all means, pick it up. I mean, the book's, like, 14, 15 bucks, like, at a bookstore. I mean, I got mine through Amazon. So, 14, 15 bucks. No big deal. I mean, if you're an Audible subscriber, I mean, you get like your one credit a month. Feel free to use it on Audible for crying out loud. Um, otherwise, I can't remember what I don't know what the price is because I use Audible so much. I think it's like twenty something bucks. Does that sound right, David? For the Audible? Yikes. Um, I, well, yeah, that's usually in line with what it normally is. Twenty bucks. Yeah. For 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 yeah, I mean, for most audiobooks, it is. I mean, obviously, if you have a subscription, it's going to be less. And if you have an Audible subscription, they even give you a bump, like a percentage off the price if you don't have credits left. I bought it with a credit, so you know it was whatever a credit was for me, <laughs> which isn't as bad. But yeah, generally, they are. And the longer the read, the more expensive it is. Like, you know, go look at any. George Double R. Martin book. They're like 30, 40 bucks a lot of the times because they're long. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I just looked it up. If you want to get it on audiobook, you don't have like a subscription, you don't have a credit to use with Audible. Uh, 1984 is what it's listed at. So, it's probably, when it's all said and done with like tax, it's probably going to be 20. And then if you're prime, then, you know, you get your delivery thing taken care of. But if you want to buy the audio CD, 
of this particular one. It's uh, $35.65 to get the, the, the CD version of this. Honest question. Do people still do that? Who? Why would they make that? <laughs> yeah. This isn't like nobody know. does books on tape anymore. Like we plug in the cassette or the CD. Well, yeah. The, uh, I've been looking for the Harry Potter series read by Stephen Fry because in the U.S. you don't get the Stephen Fry version. And I have, I have actually legitimately looked for those and I can't find them. But the only place you can find those is like at a half price bookstore and they're used and greasy and stuff. <laughs> mm. Fantastic. Well, we're, we are definitely at the end of this little book review. Um, next time, or the next book that we have on the docket, if I haven't broken David with this one, is uh, we're going to be going back to the original series era. So um, actually the original series movie era. It's called Living Memory. Um, and here it is, Living Memory. Uh, and this one actually just dropped um, here in like middle of June. So uh, we'll be covering this, uh, give us a little time to get through the material. Uh, we'll be covering this sometime in July. Um, so if you want to read along with us, go ahead and pick it up. It's uh, by Christopher L. Bennett. Uh, it's Star Trek, the original series. Living Memory's got a picture of Captain Spock and Commander Uhura um, on the cover. And uh, anyways, you'll have to tune in next time as we talk about that book. So, gents, thank you so much for coming in and, you know, contributing your ramblings about about this uh, this uh, discovery book. Um, just to put it on everyone's radar. I mean, we are very, very soon going to be back in with um, like Lower Decks. Lower Decks will be coming up here pretty soon here in the next like basically six, seven weeks, which is kind of crazy to, to think about. Um, August will be here before you know it, for crying out loud. So, um, so be on the lookout for for that, and uh, and we'll be doing some engage episodes with that. I think we're about to hit, maybe right at, or maybe a little bit more than um, a half year of Star Trek. Like we're going to be having like new Star Trek every week for quite a while. Um, we still haven't re- uh, heard a release date for Prodigy, but if I'm a betting man, we're probably going to be looking at. Um, fall or early 22, I would think. I think right, right now we have um, Lower Decks confirmed, we have Discovery confirmed, and we just found out through the trailer, uh, there was a recent trailer for Star Trek Picard Season 2, that that's going to be coming early in 2022. So uh, we still don't know anything about uh, Strange New Worlds or Prodigy for their release dates yet, but lots of exciting things in terms of Star Trek coming our way. And um, we'll have a lot of content creation <laughs> that'll be keeping us busy um, come this fall. So, anyway, again, thank you, Eric. Thank you, David, for for joining in the party. Always uh, fun having a conversation with you. I'm looking forward to our um, engaged talks um, as as much as y'all are able to do them, um, so we can have those weekly some odd conversations like we had um, in the past. So, um, anyways. Um, all you out there in Listenerland, if you've read this book, we'd love to hear what your thoughts about it. Um, go pick it up. Send us a note. We'd love to highlight it in a, um, a future episode in our Hailing Frequency section. Um, if you do want to get in contact with us, you want to learn more, send us notes, listen, whatever it might be, just learn more. You can go to trtvpod.com. Um, lots of links there. There's merch. Uh, you can support the show with purchasing merch. You can support the show with um, downloading episodes, with becoming a patron. Uh, we have some um, a patron little project of sort that's coming up. So if you want to learn more about that, um, go go uh, check it out on Patreon. 
Um, you can also, uh, if you don't want to, if you just are adverse to some, for some reason with our website, I don't know why, trtvpod.com, you can send us an email for some reason, send an email to us, uh, trtvpod at gmail.com. You can also send us a voice only transmission to 817-752-4757. And uh, remember, there's a three minute time limit and your comments may be used in a future episode. Now, finally, if you do want to send us a letter or a tea set or you know, some red tea, red leaves, red anything, you can do that. Uh, P.O. Box 2455, Azel, Texas, 76098. Everyone out there in Listerland, thank you so much for checking us out and hearing what we, hearing our thoughts today about Wonderlands. As we leave here today, may you always remember to boldly go and make it safe.